0: Hey, Jason, the band upgrade here. I love it when you make coffee. But, yeah, yeah, that is copying off Andy. We owe so much to Mr. Goodman, don't we? Okay, that's enough puffing his ego up. Back to
1: your show. Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. Uh, Doing a little bit of a call-in show, I guess. Uh, As I mentioned in a couple podcasts back, I'm kind of tightening up and getting back to the uh, chain mail Slash O D N D hack, so you're gonna hear a lot more than that. But I had a bunch of call-ins. I figured I would do this show. I did release. Well, I'll probably do this tomorrow. So the yesterday, <laughs> I did release this week. Um, kind of my first thoughts on the sword and sorcery and how my approach to this. So if you've got anything you want to call in about that, um, I would appreciate that. None of that, none of those calls will be in this episode. This is all going to be about other things like um, saving characters. Uh, how to play different uh, species alignment and so on. So uh, yeah, let's get to the calls. Okay, it looks like we got a little bit of a call in show here. We've got Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. We got John calling back in. We've got Joe from Hindsightless. We've got BJ from the Arcane Ageless. We've got Taylor from Clerics Wear for... Clerics Wear Ringmail, which, by the way, I kind of like ringmail better than chainmail. Is there a difference there? I kind of like the way that, the the, the ring of that, if you will. Oh, I almost forgot Kevin from the Red Caps podcast because they used a very top secret way of sending me a long message. Using special technology, a message was sent to me through messaging. Message was sent through messaging? Anyways, on Discord. So, sorry, I didn't see it on my list. So, uh, yeah, let's listen to that one first. Just for some context, just in case everybody doesn't listen to every episode, um, I talk about um, the idea that that's in the DMG that, uh, you know, Gary Gidek suggests that sometimes it, it, there could be a situation where an event would be fatal, and instead you can choose to adjudicate an equally, equally, and I'm quoting, I'm putting hand quotes up, I should say air quotes, a terrible thing, but not having them die. So in other words, a dragon's attacking, instead of having its bite kill you, it rips your arm off and knocks you unconscious. So... You still potentially could die, I suppose, but in theory, you know, it's saving the, the PC and how I don't think this is the same as fudging the dice. Uh, you go back to the other episode if you want to hear exactly that.
2: Hey, Daniel, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Uh, just finished listening to, or not really finished, I'm actually but halfway through uh, your most recent episode on reading the rules. Um, and just wanted to give a quick call in and comment on some things. So first, uh, Chainmail. Uh, I've been very excited to listening to your episodes on Chainmail. that you're going to focus on it more um, and would like to officially throw my name into the hat, uh, so to speak, if there's ever an open seat to play. Um, I've never played Chainmail, would really enjoy doing so. Um, On the other topic that you covered here, differences between what I would call basically technical manuals in terms of the newer rule books that really focus on rules as written, as opposed to some of the older ones, which were more like guidelines and advice intermixed with rules. Um, <clears throat> I think that's very uh, you know accurate to, to what you're describing, um, especially when it comes to like old school essentials and the original BX books. Um, one's definitely a technical manual and the other one's more of a, a book with advice in it. Um, and I do agree that I think the, the advice and context is very good for teaching how to play the game, uh, much like if you were a student film maker. Watching a director's commentary is probably more useful than just watching the film itself, uh, getting that context around it. So I completely agree with you there. Um, I think for myself, when it comes to OSE and, and the BX books, I prefer OSE simply for the readability factor, but I do agree if you're trying to learn, uh, having that advice in there is good. On to what you probably expected me to call in about, which was our discussion on uh, on fudging and, and how it applies via the books itself. Um, you and I are on the same page when it comes to fudging, so we don't really need to talk about that. But as far as when it started coming in, I really think that Gary in first edition um, does mention the fact that fudging is kind of okay. And even when you use the example that you gave, like during the conversation, you you gave an example of, you know, one character jumps across the river and on the rocks and you look at that character and you say, okay, you give me a dex check. And then the character right behind them comes and does a jump. And you say, no, you can't have the dex check. And you're saying, well, that's not quite as, as cool. Uh, you know, you may have a different check depending on the situations, but if it's like one right after the other, you're treating one character differently and giving different rules. And that may not be as cool unless you've got a really good reason to That's kind of the same thing as if you're in this dragon fight and player A gets hit for eight damage and is reduced to zero HP and dies, and then character B gets hit for eight eight damage, which would normally have reduced them to, to zero HP, but instead you decide, ah, I'm going to rip off your arm. I mean, especially if you're doing that because you feel sorry for the character, you're kind of changing stuff and that is fudging, even if it's not via the dice roll. Um, to be fair, I think that's a, an awesome story. If you ripped off my arm in game, I wouldn't complain about it. I think it was pretty cool. I'd probably retire the character, but uh, I'd have some cool story to tell. But it is changing the game um, in a way that's different than what everybody agreed on at the beginning, which is kind of the lying thing. Whether it's one, something that anybody cares about is a completely different discussion, but um, it is kind of fudging there. That said, there is language in the DMG that leads me to think there's more implicit uh um examples in that though so i'm gonna pull up my my dmg here and you've got an entry in here where gary says um it is your right to control the dice at any time and roll dice for players which you know that's nothing new there you might wish to give them uh, you might wish to do this to keep them from knowing a specific fact you might also wish to give them an edge in finding a particular clue or a secret door meaning that you may roll the dice for them not so much because you're trying to hide it from them them from something, but because you want to give them an edge on finding something, um, you do have the right to overrule the dice at any time. Uh, if there is a particular course of events that you would like to have occur. So again, you're changing what the dice would happen to fudge something to force it your way. Um, in making such a decision, you should never seriously harm a party or a non-player character. Always give monsters an even break. Um, so I guess that's a fewer, you know, fudging the dice too often in the player's favor as opposed to fudging it against them. Um, And then later on, he says, uh, on the same section, this is all from page 110 of the DMG, he goes, yet one dice roll you should never tamper with is system shock roll to be raised from the dead. So if that's the one die roll that you should never tamper with, that means there's other die rolls that are acceptable to tamper with. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, fudging is... Guaranteed in the DMG, but he definitely does imply it. Whereas in previous editions, uh, from you know OD&D through most of the basics, it seems like there's very much a firm, uh, you know, the referee is impartial. You don't you don't treat anything differently. You treat everything equally. And in first edition, you get some language like this, and then uh, you know by the time you get the third edition. Uh, it's completely jumped the shark and they're full on saying, go ahead and fudge um, with the actual word fudging uh, being used. So um, again, uh, I, you and I are on the same page of whether or not we we think fudging is right or good, but I'm just saying that I think it did start to come in in first edition uh, as far as like, you know, the rule book indicating that it's, it's allowed. Anyhow, love the episodes and I will continue listening to this one because I still have over half the podcast to finish listening to, um, but enjoy your day. Talk to you again soon. Bye.
1: Right, right, of course. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, I I can't deny the words that are on the page, right? Especially, you know, using the system shock as the example. I don't take it exactly the way you do still. I I still don't take it as you roll the die, see that it doesn't kill, that the the dragon's going to kill the player, and then say, oh, it missed. I think there's a difference. Mm, Did I say that in the other podcast? I may actually say this later in this podcast. I've had so many podcasts lately, so I might be... Well, now I'm not repeating myself. This would be the first time I've said it. But if I didn't say it already in a different podcast, I'm saying it now. There's a big difference between rolling dice behind the table and lying to the players about the result and rolling dice, whatever, whether they're in front of the players or behind the screen, and then saying, this dragon should kill you, but I'm. this is the reason why it's not happening. Now, you might say, and this is what Jason brings up, How do you choose? Like, how is that fair? Are you you being favorites? Are you not being favorites? And I I do understand what you're saying about the impartial judge versus the dungeon master in the sense that, like, you are controlling this, uh, this, I hate to use the word, story, but... So, yeah, I I definitely agree with you on that. I I, I 100% see your point. It's not how I took it when I read it back in the day and I was just a kid. And it's not how anybody I played with took it, but I could definitely see somebody taking it as, you're the DM, who even needs to roll dice? You just roll dice behind the screen and make up what's there. Because you do get people that talk like that. So clearly that came from somewhere. I think more heavily in 2nd edition, personally. Um, and I only say that because if you look at 2nd edition, um, the way it's written, everything is right from the very, like within the first couple of pages, it says stuff like, you can do this if your DM lets you. Like it seems very like, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Just the, the tone of it to me was a little off-putting. But maybe again, that's not because I, I didn't come from 2nd edition. Those 2nd edition people out there can come at me and tell me why it's not that. But I I felt that when I I read Second Edition, and I was like, I don't really like the tone of this, but whatever. That's either here nor there. I don't disagree. I could break that down, you know, sentence by sentence, which is what I was thinking about doing, but in the end, it can easily be interpreted the way that you are saying, that he's saying that you can make the dice say whatever they want. It's not exactly how I read it, but I think that your interpretation of it is very fair. But I do think that there's a very big difference between... Rolling the dice behind the screen, seeing that it does something terrible and pretending like that die roll did not do that. And then just moving on versus rolling it and saying, because again, I think I said it on this podcast, I would almost be more okay with the DM doing it in front of me. You know, like if they rolled a natural 20, it would kill me uh, right in front of me on the table and then said, you know what, that's going to suck for this story. Let's just say that your arm's ripped off. I would probably say, okay, or I might anyways. And then like you, I'd probably retire the character. Thanks for calling.
0: I probably need to listen to your episode again, or at least the first part of the episode again, because I've stopped at the point you're gonna play calls. But I'm trying to understand and, and I should listen again before I, I call this call in. So the dragon ripping the arm off is just effectively GM fiat, right? you you're just and, and and it's not something you're doing all the time. It's just every now and then. So how do you decide which characters you would apply that to and which not? And, and I mean, I know how kind of I would if I did it in my campaign. But, I mean, it's kind of like awarding extra experience points for good role playing, right? You, you could definitely fall in that, that thing of other players getting jealous or, or people seeing it as favoritism or, or things like that. So I'm wondering, like, your thoughts on that topic when you're applying that kind of thing, just when you apply that kind of thing as a every now and then thing and kind of like when you feel it's it's appropriate, which I'm not saying you shouldn't do and I'm not saying that's the wrong way to play. I guess I'm asking, how do you keep that from getting to the point where players start feeling it's unfair, right? And I guess that's kind of why I prefer to use, I, I death isn't always the most interesting thing. I 100% agree with that. And I like the idea of a more t- of a table, where you roll, in the, you know, they hit zero hit points, you roll on the table, depending on, I talk about this on Joe's show, but depending on how many times they've gone to zero hit points, you know, the chance of being dead, dead goes up, but there's also a chance on their being maimed or wounded or this or that. But but I think doing that randomly eliminates the chance of players feeling left out or feeling that you're favoring other people or, or you you, you know, getting a a, a false hope because you do like that player that, that they are, they do feel you're protecting them. I don't know. Thoughts?
1: Oh yeah. You're making really good points. And I mean, I don't know that I can letter of the law defend that. Right. But I also think that kind of my point of that, that section, even though I went off in a tangent was that um, if, depending on how a rule set is written and uh, it can be interpreted many different ways. And I, and I like to think of, the DMG especially, as, you know, again, uh, Gary Gygax giving us advice versus telling us this is the letter of the law. So, you know, you could look at it like, well, that's not fair because you're favoring one player over another, but I think that what you've got to do is look at it with your experience as a Dungeon Master and decide, because what he kind of says is if they did everything right. So, if the player drank their potion of you know, dragon resistance breath, if the if the player snuck up on the dragon when it was sleeping, if the player, you know, had the proper armor and arms to defeat the dragon. But <laughs> something happened. You know, a, a die roll was made and the dragon was not surprised. Even though they did everything right, the DM decided they were going to roll anyways because dragons are hard to surprise. And boom, then all of a sudden the player character also loses initiative. Uh, boom, then the dragon blows their breath and does maximum damage. Boom, the player... Well, of course, blows of breath in this case wouldn't make sense, but the dragon bites and does maximum damage, and, you know, boom, the player fails a saving throw, whatever. Like, every die falls against them, even though they made all the right plans, all the things that in, if you were telling a story, it should have worked, right? But the dice are the randomness. Then, not letting it work, because that would be fudging, or just letting it work, I guess, and not rolling at all, but rather saying, it doesn't work, but this is the consequence, this is actually one reason why, built into my Chainmail game, and also in yeah the, the OD&D Chainmail, um, in most places I'm going back and re-editing more, but I'm making sure that I never say dead, or say death very rarely. What I want to say is defeated, because I always feel like, in the situation where you reach zero hit points, or zero hit dice in that case, it should be up to the exact situation and the logic of the situation, whether your character dies, or whether they are knocked unconscious, or whether they are injured, and I think we can make those determinations uh, based on what's logical to happen, but we definitely need to be careful and make sure that we are, in fact, fair. And this is where getting the, taking the temperature of your table constantly is important. You know, you want to make sure that, player, that you're talking to your players and that you are being fair. You know, I mean, I, I know if I went back through all my actual plays, I could probably find many times where when I say something or I'm adjudicating some kind of damage or a situation, I'll say, is that fair? And the players will say yes, you know. If they were like, no, that's not fair, then I would rethink what I'm doing, you know. I mean, ultimately, somebody has to be the referee, right? Somebody has to make the decision, but you need to be as neutral as possible and make that decision based on the facts of the situation and not necessarily the hard line of the rule In is kind of what he's saying. Although, again... If we read through that entire thing, he basically says, don't do that. But in an extreme situation where the person has done everything right and everything is a favor, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the point, right? It's it's kind of like what I'm doing here. I'm not saying exactly yes or no or how you can do it. I'm giving you you my thoughts and my advice. If you were a, uh, and you're not, obviously you have more experience than I do, but if you were a new dungeon master uh, and you came to me and said, this is a situation. In fact, I will, (laughs) completely off topic. Um, uh, But maybe on topic I will say that um, When I was running my 5th edition campaign um, I may have told the story before But I'll tell it real briefly Basically the players had this this situation That that they got themselves into And they actually made the wrong decisions But the thing is Is that I didn't feel like Or I wasn't sure that I telegraphed how dangerous it was And the reason why I feel that Is because when the thing happened Where I was like well this is going to now cause, I forget the ridiculous amount of damage it was going to cause, which was more than double everybody's hit points, which means that they were instantly dead with no save. They all kind of looked at me like, "What? why did I do that? Like they, they Clearly, I as a DM had failed. I did not let them know by telegraphing that this was a problem. Not one player not understanding and everybody else was like, yeah, obviously. No, they all seemed a little confused by it. So I said, listen, let's just leave it here and let me think about it. And I went back to the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide and I read about saving throws and what the original purpose of saving throws were. And they were really for that moment where the, uh, the character is going to do something that should not be possible. They're going to survive something they should not survive. They're chained to a stone. A dragon is breathing their fiery breath on them. They should be dead. They get that saving throw because sometimes the hero survives even though it doesn't seem possible. So I went back to my group, and I gave everybody one saving throw. And of course, as, as it turned out, they actually all survived, and it was pretty amazing, and it was epic, and everybody remembers that. And they don't remember it because they survived, I don't think, or because they died. I think they remember it because it was a moment where we had to look at the rules and as a group make a decision. We, I mean, I made the decision. They were going to go with whatever I wanted, but they were okay with what I decided because I said, I came back and I said, this is what I think we should do. And I even told them why. And this is the same situation. Like, I don't think I would just be like, okay, dragon does 50 damage to you, you're dead, dragon does 50 damage to you, oh, your arm's just torn off, oh, dragon does 50... No, I mean, obviously, you're going to want it to be a group thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much nuance to how we run games that I don't like heavy, heavy rule systems with very specific rules because I would miss that nuance. If I knew that there was absolutely no way that the the game master could... uh, adjudicate a situation that was kind of seemed a little bit off, that would be boring to me if the game was just, oh, I move here, I'm just playing chess at that point, right? It's like there is no conversation. It's literally just I move my piece here, you're dead, you move your piece there, I'm dead. And that's just not interesting to me. So can there be favoritism? Yes. Do we need to be very careful about that? Absolutely. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to take the temperature of the table. And, I mean, honestly, I've played under not that many DMs. I've run one that I've played um in the later years. And I would say that not every DM is good at taking that temperature. So if you are if you are not good at taking that temperature, kind of self-evaluate yourself. If you don't think you're good at that, then don't make those kind of choices and decisions. And if or very much put it plainly to the table and say, listen guys, I think this should happen. And if the table looks at you like, huh no, they screwed up, then you let them die. I mean, that's just the way it is. But hopefully uh we all get to the point where we feel comfortable in the realities of our world, that we can make the decision that would seem logical, that nobody at the table is going to feel like they're being favored or, you know, uh, penalized. And if somebody does feel that way, then that should be brought to the, the forefront and it should be discussed and handled in whatever way it needs to be handled. So, in any case, that's a very good question, and I get it. I mean, one of the things I love about the DMG is that there's a lot of things like that. Almost everything you read in the DMG, you could probably ask that same question, like, oh, aren't you favoring whatever? Yeah, I mean, you got to be, you got to try to be as neutral as possible. And it's one of the most difficult things to do, especially when you're playing with your friends. None of us, well, I hope, none of us want all the PCs to get slaughtered. You know, we want our heroes to, to triumph. We want, you know, when, when, when I play a game, I try, I try to make it as difficult as possible for the players to succeed, but I want them to succeed. I'm rooting for them. And when they crush it, it's awesome. You know, and if they fail, I feel it along with them, but I do not save them. I do not save them unless there's a situation where, in this case, maybe I might. I've never done such a thing except for what I just described, so I don't know that I would just have drag and rip the arm off, but it's good to know that Gary is saying sometimes you got to look at the situation and evaluate it. And again, my other point there was that it seems like the way he's telling you how to do this is not do it behind the curtain, like... Okay, uh yeah, this is I rolled this thing and I'm lying to the players. Literally just put it out there. This is what I'm going to do. And I think then you're going to have a good um a good table uh culture.
0: You got me in a corner here on the fiend folio thing. If I could only have one or the other, I I think the monster manual because it's part of the core rulebook. It's not an add-on, right? So the the rules for advanced dungeons and dragons are the Monster Manual, the Player Handbook, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. I and, and yeah, the monsters in the Monster Manual are kind of listed in the back of the DMG, sort of. But r- realistically, I think that's part of your core rules. So I so I don't think you could leave out the Monster Manual and insert the Fiend Folio in its place because there are just so many th- times if you're playing by the rules and, and you're playing the modules and you're. And even if you don't play the modules, if you're rolling up using the tables and the DMG and stuff, you, you would have to rework all that to have the Folio as your core monster book. And, and, and it doesn't cover all the same ground. So, so no, I, I would pick the Monster Manual if I had to make that horrible choice.
1: Fortunately, we do not have to make that horrible choice. And uh, we can eliminate uh, Deities and Demigods and uh, ugh, Monster Manual 2 from uh, the AD&D and say that Folio can be a... Uh Honorary fourth book.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying with backgrounds, and and I think you're right. It depends on the system. If it's a system that you're rolling and you get mechanical benefits, because, like, say Savage Worlds, where you have, you're you have negative you have pro- in a lot of systems. So let's not use Savage Worlds. Let's just say the idea of having, um, a, shoot, how my brain's not working. But you 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 know you have. Edges and you have flaws, right? And these are going to call different things, different systems, obviously. But the the idea where you take negative traits and those negative traits give you extra character points, or you have a a balanced number of good traits and bad traits. You know, barbarians, of lemuria does this too. In, in those kind of systems, yeah, I I definitely see where where you're going with that. I, I guess I was thinking straight from a a um an OSR kind of standpoint, a you know BX kind of standpoint.
1: So to give some background on this background conversation, I think <laughs> I even forget what I said. I think what I was talking about was there was a conversation was like, well, if you rolled something up for your background, and you don't like it, why not just change it? You know, just as soon as you step into play, you just change it. And I was talking about the situations where they are meant to give you benefits or penalties. So, like the idea of rolling a bad, like a nemesis, let's say, that might count as a bad background. To just say, well, no, I don't want that nemesis now just seems weird to me. Like, why would you just get rid of it? So that's kind of what what I meant. And I think Jason has now understood, maybe. I don't know. Agreed, maybe. I'm not sure agreed, but definitely understood. (laughs) Maybe understood. Do we really understand each other? I think we do.
0: Okay, now I've got traffic behind me to make you feel better about recording on your porch. So... As far as the backgrounds go, yeah, I mean, I wasn't saying in game willy-nilly you would say, oh, I'm not afraid of spiders anymore now, I'm afraid of snakes to avoid a situation. That wasn't my intent. My intent was the idea that you can change it narratively. And and we're not talking about games like Riddle of Steel or, say, Burning Wheel, where there are mechanics built in. You know, your characters have motivations and, and goals, and, and that's actually the, the core of the game is, is you're trying to accomplish those things. I, I think and, and mechanic, there are mechanics built around that. I, I'm not talking about that. I, again, I was talking about importing the idea backgrounds into, like, BX, right? Games where it's, it's built into the system, I, I think you leave alone. I'm not suggesting we alter games where backgrounds are, are mechanical and built in the system.
1: Right, exactly. Well, I get that. I, I think that, though, the conversation started with me saying that I didn't particularly like the build technique I thought I would like, but I didn't particularly like the idea of how you build characters in Cyberpunk where you roll up the backgrounds. And then the conversation went to, from both you and Joe, was, well, as soon as you start playing, just throw that out the window. It's like, it says here that I don't like this person. Well, now I do. That, to me, just seems silly, because what's the point of doing it? I, I get if it's mechanically connected. I'm not a fan of that, personally. But, um, you know, as far as games, but hey, you know, what? everybody has their own way of playing. I think that if you roll a background, though, and it gives you something, like, let's say it says, hey, your background is the, um, like, in my case, my background, I had a problem with the person that's related to the government that this happened and now they hate me or whatever. Like, for me to just start the game and be like, oh, you know what, guys, I just had a phone call with Bob and, uh, you know, Bob doesn't hate me anymore. I mean, (laughs) why did I even bother rolling up the background? Like, what is the point of it? Um, And I do think it adds something. It doesn't give you mechanics as in, like, hey, plus three to hit, but it gives you something that's going to be a story beat, possibly, and possibly a negative one that you don't want to deal with. Like, if I don't want to be wanted by the police or whatever the other thing is I might have rolled, you know, if I can just wash that away with just talking about it, that, to me, makes the the point of rolling completely uh, not worth it. Like, just... (laughs) So, that was my point. I mean... Uh, I don't think it's so, and and again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that we should change the way the game is. I just, I found that personally, now I'm looking at a character I don't necessarily want to play and maybe that's fun. You know, you know, Joe seems to think that makes you a better role player when you are forced to play things that you don't want to play, but I don't know. I'm just playing it to to have fun. I'm not trying to be a great role player or the best role player or anything. As long as I can have fun hanging out with my friends, that's, that's all I want to do. We talk about this stuff like it's this like life-changing thing, but honestly, it's just a game. So, <laughs> you know, if I'm a crappy role player because I don't want to role a char- play a character that I don't like, then I guess I'm a crappy role player. What can I say? Well, I never said I was a good player. Did I ever say I was a good player? I don't think so. I'm definitely not a good player. I'm actually the worst kind of player, the one that doesn't like to follow the rules and always tries to do things outside the box. So good luck to you when I play in your game.
0: As far as the idea of using the usage die for armor, yes. That's what I meant, is you would go, you know, so you would, if if the usage die dropped, and you could even set armor, I mean, the usage die could either go down as well, so, like, plate would start with a D12, maybe, or a D10, but each time it goes down, yeah, it would go from, like, 3 to 4 to 5 to 6, as far as AC, each time it drops, right? And maybe it drops the usage as well, it, in usage die as well, so the more damage it gets, the quicker it deteriorates. So, I, mean, I don't know, it's just an idea of mechanics. Some games have durability in there, some don't. Um, it, it just depends if you want to fiddle with that stuff or not. Um, I I don't think it's wrong either way. But, yeah, look forward to your further thoughts. I will try not to call in so much, so not to clog up the airwaves because I'd want to hear about this
1: Chainmail Sword and Sorcery thing. Take care. Ah, see, not only are you not clogging up the airwaves, that actually might be... I don't know exactly how I would use it. I don't think I'd use it to be honest, but the idea of durability and stuff might become useful in the swords and sorcery game because, again, you're not going to have lots of... One of the things that you're going to... I say, again, I don't know if I've... I don't know what order I'm releasing these, so I'm not sure if I've already talked about it or not, but one of the goals in the game is going to be to accumulate things, like accumulate weapons, accumulate armor, accumulate, you know, men, accumulate horses, whatever... So having it that your armor, you know, after a major battle, let's say you've got 20 armored men, you know, armored foot, and they have a major clash, you could roll something, and it could be like some of them are now dropped down to the equivalent of heavy foot because their plate armor is damaged, and now they're just wearing, like, you know, some pieces of it with some of the chain underneath. So that could actually be kind of interesting. You could So every clash that you have, there's, there's potential that, um, that your men might actually become, you know, assuming you're leading men, like in the, the higher levels, your men could become more... uh you know, uh, weakened, let's say, so they they defend less easily. And of course, that just means you need to defeat more people and take their stuff. So <laughs> that could be interesting. And, and I think I won't necessarily add something like that on right away. But I could see that being some kind of a, oh no, <laughs> a resource management supplement. I know people are going to hate that. But uh, yeah, I mean, that could be really interesting, right? And then again, you don't have to spend hours between games doing it. That could just be a cheat that you roll on and you know, you've destroyed this army that had this many armored foot, which gives you this many sets of armor that you can add to your group and stuff like that. That can be really interesting and a way to kind of mechanize uh, some of this stuff. Because one th- one issue that I do have with using the chainmail system with OD&D, with and actually this is the truth in OD&D in general, or really any of the really older D&D games, is that once you throw plate mail on someone, unless you're going to have them like fall, constantly falling in pits of water and stuff. Plate mail makes you, as it should, if you're being realistic, plate mail makes you hard to hit. (laughs) So, I mean, you get yourself in a suit of armor and you're kicking some butt. So I don't think that in this sword and sorcery game I want to lean heavily there. In fact, I only know of, I haven't read all the Conan stories, but I only know of one Conan story where he wears wears plate. Um, And it it is actually described, well, he he feels uncomfortable in it, but he does actually, like, he can't be hurt. He's basically impenetrable in this plate armor. So... And the the you know the other people wearing plate armor are also like that. I think at some point he loses it or takes it off, and then he fights a guy in plate, and it's hard to beat him. But anyways, I don't want to give away Conan's story. A spoiler for a story that's a, probably close to 100 years old at this point. Um, wow, it's weird to think about things being from the 20s or 100 years old. But anyways, um, <laughs> excellent, and please call in. I, I think what's interesting about talking about RPGs in different ways is that... Um, Sometimes you're coming, you're talking about something from like a story game or something, and next thing you know, you're realizing, hey, that kind of thing could work in my BX game, or you're talking about something in uh, an OSR game, and hey, maybe that could be interesting to put into my storytelling game. I mean, who knows where these things can lead. So please do call in. Um, It's always great to hear from you.
3: Hello, Daniel. This is Stone Cold Steve Elf. I was just listening to your recent episode, and you were speaking of your enjoyment of the quantum ogre aspect of emergent backstory. Yet you are also saying that you'd like to put limits on that emergent backstory. Your example was a player saying they suddenly have a brother and that would be cool. But that player then saying their brother owns this shop would not be cool. I suppose my question would be, why? As you pointed out in an earlier episode, a player invented an entire kingdom, and you destroyed it, and it led to awesomeness. So could not the shop owner brother also lead to awesomeness? Goodbye.
1: That's a very good point. <laughs> I don't have much to say about that. I think what I meant, and I, I can't remember exactly where I, the context, I think what I mean is that, like, they needed some stuff and they were going to get it for free because suddenly there was somebody there to just give it to them. It is kind of what I mean. It's like they, they can't just use it to solve a problem per se, although they could, if it was uh, discussed. I mean, again, I'm not a hundred percent against it as usual. Uh, it really depends on the situation with me, but yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I'm totally for somebody um, creating something as long as uh, if it's going to have an, an effect on the adventure directly, that it's uh, you know, it's discussed with the GM on some level, or that they're okay with me just going, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> because again, as I mentioned many times, one of the big things with players introducing plot elements and stuff is that they don't know everything that's going on in the story, and they might actually introduce something that could screw up what you've already established as what's going on, and for something that might not even really matter, right? I mean, if it's really important to them and their character, that's one thing, but like if it's just a sudden idea that they have like okay I'll give an example which is this is not G rated, we'll call it PG I had a player who uh, liked to have her characters you know engage with the, uh, we'll say like the uh, NPCs in such a way that we would fade to black <laughs> and I had an important NPC that had some information for the players and stuff and I just had them in the bar and then when we faded to the morning scene that player said I walk out of the room with that woman and I said, uh, no, you don't. If she had said a random person from the bar, I would have been okay with it. Whatever. Not a big deal. But that person very specifically is somebody who I knew they were, they were NPC that I was already uh, put into the world that had certain motivations, certain desires. And I knew that they weren't going to just randomly hook up with an adventurer just because a player decided to be funny in that moment. So yeah, I guess that's what it is. You have to make a judgment on each individual, um, case, case-by-case basis Um, case-by-case basis at bandits keep yo daniel
3: what games are you talking about that give you a mechanical benefit based on your background flaws and stuff like mostly on your show you talk about O D D and chainmail or fifth edition dungeons and dragons Uh, 5e does not give you advantages based on your character flaws those things you roll up at character creation they're merely like role-playing tags you know, you use the example of I trade my plus three fear of spiders for a plus three fear of snakes. Where does that come from? <laughs> that's, that's not like in Cyberpunk 2020 either. You know, you've talked a bunch about how it sucks that your Cyberpunk 2020 character, their ex-boyfriend hates them and stuff. But that doesn't give you any sort of mechanical advantage or disadvantage. So, yeah, what, what games are you talking about, dude? Peace out.
1: I'm talking about games where, like, you pick flaws and then you, you get uh, a benefit for it. Usually it's like you get, I want an extra, I think actually Mothership does this. Like, uh, I want to, you know, you get th- you get three powers at the beginning, right? But then if you want a fourth power, you have to take a flaw in order to have it. That that kind of game is what I'm talking about. And then once you block that in, you shouldn't have to do it. And actually, you must have rolled very differently than me in Cyberpunk. I lost my arm because of my background thing. And I have people, wa- I'm, I'm wanted. So that very much has a mechanical benefit. You can say that's narrative, but it's not narrative. I've lost my arm, <laughs> which means I had to spend money at the beginning of my character creation to replace it with a cybernetic arm or to be not have an arm, basically. So that is very much a mechanical thing from the cyberpunk, from my character specifically. Which, by the way, my arm is awesome that I replaced it with, so I'm pretty psyched about that. But it is definitely a mechanical thing. One more, because <laughs> I know you'll like this. Top secret SI, right? In SI, you take, uh, I don't know what they call it, though. I don't know if are flaws, but you take like a thing, like you're deeply in debt or you are addicted to cigarettes or whatever, and in exchange for that, you get a power. So that kind of thing. And there's lots of games that do it. I just don't know them all off the top of my head. I, I have long since moved away from most games because I, I found what I like, and it's Pathfinder 2. I confess it now, here on the Bansky Podcast. Oh, no, oh, no, no, not Pathfinder 2, O D D.
4: Hi, Daniel. I just wanted to make a few comments about the kind of role-playing I see out there today. Lots of in-character interaction between player characters and NPCs and even between player characters. I come from a background where we didn't really do any of that. We were almost entirely narrative where we just described what our characters were doing and described how they were interacting with... NPCs and everything that happened between player characters was essentially part of the meta. I'm of course more partial to the more narrative style of play. In fact I've been planning on describing my campaigns as fast and furious role-playing where we skip a lot of the niceties of character interaction and go straight to describing the plot points and the action. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think there are a lot of people out there who want a more streamlined take on role-playing. I've seen a lot of online games that took three hours that could have been done in less than one if they just changed their approach a little. So thanks. I do enjoy listening to your uh, live plays though even though they're a little different than the way I would do it. Hey, John, thanks for your feedback.
1: I hmm, I think that's super interesting, and I don't think it's a bad way to play. Of course, everybody plays differently. Um, and I think a mixture of those two things is what is my preference. I, I, I see you saying that things could have been done in an hour that took three hours, but if the players are enjoying playing, play-acting, improv role-playing, however you want to say it, um, you know, however, not you, but whoever the people want to say, is that wrong? Then that it took three hours? I, I don't think so. I, I did. I, I think that it really depends on the goal of the session, right? Maybe the goal of the session is for people to explore um, other facets of personality facets, where they can kind of do more of an improv uh, type setup. Now, I I do think that if you are going to sit down, if that if that's the way that you play, right? you should certainly make that clear to anybody joining the group so that if they are more in the, the type that uh, would prefer to just say, my character does this, let me roll some dice, and then they know that they're in for a long night, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's just different styles of playing. I don't think that one is necessarily right or wrong. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting, and sometimes uh, I do play more closely to what, what, uh, what you're saying. But I tend to like, uh, when I get together with my friends, Encompassing the characters, playing the, the the different NPCs, having fun with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that that's what's made this hobby so interesting, right? You can go all the ways from absolutely no role play at all and just mechanics to something in the middle to something that's very much a role play and very little mechanics, and all be kind of playing the same game, which is pretty cool.
3: Me again. I know I'm leaving a lot of messages, and that you want your channel to be focused on chainmail, but. I'm calling it anyway, dude. <laughs> so you and Spencer were just talking about being out of sync, like elves being out of sync because elves have such long lifespans. And yeah, dude, I, that's for sure. I was just watching a little documentary on chip chimps and apes. uh, And their reaction time is roughly 10 times faster than humans. So they basically see the world around them, especially us in slow motion think what that would do to change your world view that would be pretty crazy i have no idea if that's helpful at all but i thought it was cool peace out
1: oh man that is so cool i really i really love that idea that's a good way to look at it right because here we are different species interacting with the world in a different way right so again i don't know how you would bring that to the table per se but it's always fun to to mess around with it but yeah I, i like this idea so, uh, thanks. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I think slowly but surely we'll drift more towards the other direction, but I'll, I'll always take any call because yeah. uh, I love interacting with you guys. And you especially, Joe. Stone Cold, Steve Elf.
5: Hey, Daniel, you just said something interesting about um, being able to change the narrative elements of your character because you know, that's kind of what you want to do just because it's your character. It's your character's, I guess, their personality, their motivation, their... Their identity, whatever it is to measure. So I'm going to go at one of the sacred cows of old school D&D, and that's alignment. Maybe not so much BX, but at least the AD&D nine-point system, where you are at times given lots of rules about how to track alignment and how to penalize characters who don't role-play in accordance with their alignment. And my question has always been, that's not a mechanic. If that's a descriptor, why do you get punished for deciding i think i made a mistake i think my I, I originally saw this guy say chaotic good but now i'm thinking they're more they're neutral good or lawful good or, or maybe they're new they're they're neutral they're not good at all why why do you punish somebody from that with a mechanic like xp when it's when it's primarily a role-playing tool i mean i mean to me that's the same as hey the game required when i made this character to select a, a flaw or or an ideal or a a value that this person holds to, and now I've kind of changed my mind because I'm not feeling it. Um, I should just be able to change that, right? Well, why is alignment different from that? I, I guess I've never understood, and I don't think you've advocated for punishing people for changing alignment. But I, it's an interesting discussion. I do know in AD&D, particularly, well, and maybe even in OD&D, I'd have to go look. There are certain sorts of—I um, mean, it's not that it's not a mechanical thing. There are certain magical effects that, that work or don't work or work differently based on the uh, the character's alignment when they sort of come under the the effect or or exposed to those kinds of magic or certain items and things like that. So I guess it's not a maybe maybe I'm cheating a little bit in the way I'm framing the argument there. But that whole punishing people for just for changing their alignment because they change their mind that always seemed heavy-handed like, you know, um you know, barring a curse that's basically a form of mind control where I think it's probably playing in good faith when the DM says hey you put on this helmet and it's cursed and now it's it's made you lawful evil okay well until until somebody recognizes what's happened and tries to pull this thing off me or remove the curse I'll, I'll play along Th- that's one thing but to just say you know you said your character was lawful good but you're kind of behaving more in a lawful neutral manner there we're going to penalize your ex we're, we're either going to you know get back in line or i'm going to change your or i the dm i'm going to change your alignment whether you like it or not and force an xp penalty on you for the next time you level up that's i never understood the logic behind that so maybe maybe you do maybe you don't but help me out here it's just just kind of thinking through it anyway great episode
1: yeah i wonder if um first of all yes I'm, i'm with you on this i'm not about punitively changing people's alignments um or even penalizing them for it if they do it willingly as long as they actually are role-playing it that way and they're not doing it for something like, oh, oh, I found a neutral sword. Also, you know, I'm going to be neutral now. That, that seems kind of, I don't know. I mean, I would probably still let somebody do it, but I would probably give them a bunch of crap about it. So <laughs> I'm much nicer in actual games than I seem to be on podcasts, I guess. But, um, yeah, I think that... Uh, that that's one reason why it might be uh, something that they kind of restrict on some level. But I definitely think you should be able to change on your own. And maybe over time, you know, maybe in order to change the alignment, you you could talk to the GM ahead of time and be like, hey, listen, I feel like my character is leaning more towards, um, you know, neutral good instead of lawful good. Um, so I'm going to start playing them in that direction. And I think we should probably change my character's alignment over time. And I think that's fine. They shouldn't be anything punitive about that. The only time I could see it is if you kind of take advantage of a situation like, oh, I want to play, I don't know who has an alignment. They have, well, besides a Paladin, that's always a classic, but also I think assassins, I think they can't be good. So I want to play an assassin, but, uh, you know, I'm constantly, but I want to play them good. I just want to be an assassin because I want the assassin ability or whatever. I don't know. I feel like if you're trying to hold up tropes in your game, then you might not want that. But also if the player came to you before the game and you had a conversation, I think that could be okay, you know? Again, I think a lot of this comes down to communicating ahead of time and people be on the same page about what's what. So if you're coming into my game, let's say, and there are restrictions on, let's say it's a first edition game, and I was going to say, well, you know, if you're going to be a paladin, you got to be lawful good. I think what I would do is I would put kind of, maybe even create like a, a code, you know, say, this is what me as a DM in this world, this is what I see as lawful good. Let's talk about it. You know, I think that you should be, you know, selfless. You should, you know, never retreat if your party doesn't retreat. I think you should, you know, give to charity. I think you should uh, go out of your way to help people, even if it's not in your best interest, blah, blah, stuff like that, you know. And then once the player agrees to all that, you know, and if they look at it and they go, oh, no, I actually I think lawful good as this. And we had this conversation and we're both OK with it. Now we've got some tenants that we can we can actually use for that particular character to help keep them in what we both feel is lawful good for the reasoning of being a paladin, which is a very powerful, you know, class. Now, if they're just a fighter that's lawful good, and then they, they start going about the the game, and they're just like, you know what, my fighter's a little bit more neutral, I mean, again, not a big deal for me. But, yeah, I definitely don't think doing it punitively makes sense. And I wonder if the fact that probably some people did that, probably a, a lot of people, because <laughs> people are jerks, um, apparently, well, thank, thankfully, I have not run into many of them in my gaming Um, But based on stories you read online, yeah, there's a lot of people. But anyways, um, I think that maybe that just turned people off to it. So, I don't know. I always look at uh, alignment as a role-play tool. And personally, I like the three-point alignment, and it's more like a general cosmology, if you want to make that. uh, I guess in Carcosa, right, Uh, they say, um, in the Carcosa supplement, they say, uh, you rate alignment like this. When the Great Old Ones come to destroy the Earth... If you are going to oppose them, you are lawful. If you are going to side with them, you are chaotic. If you're not going to take a side and you're just going to hide, you're neutral or something to that effect. <laughs> so maybe that's easier, right?
6: Hey, Daniel. This is Taylor of Clerics Wear Ringman calling in about getting into the headspace of an alien demi human race. One of the things I like about demi human races is to have them be archetypes, to have them represent something, and to have them, as you've been describing, be foreign or alien to the normal human train of thought. That said, in order to try to inspire that kind of behavior, to reinforce that archetype, one of the things I'm trying out is XP bonus based on actions. Now, This is coming on the heels of a conversation I recently had with Jason, where I said that you should not reward uh, players for role-play, but we're uh, we're gonna ignore that for right now. I know that you tend to use elves as your go-to example, so I will follow suit and talk about elves. In my home game, I like to have themes of man versus nature and industrialization versus uh, agrarian or cottage industry. Elves are the face of nature. Elves tend to be a representation of the world before the rise of civilization and the life that springs forth thereby. In order to reinforce that, elves in my world don't have a concept of the value of money. They understand that you use it as a mechanism of exchange, of course, but they don't value it. It's not central to their being. Money is a means to an end, not an end in and of itself, as it is in a lot of uh, industrialized environments. What does this mean for a player? Well, as we know, elves have some special benefits and as a balancing act, have a longer XP track. To counteract this, elf players, when getting gold for XP, are allowed to give back. So, an elf player that returns gold to the pot, say there's five of us and we found a thousand gold pieces, the elf says, eh, I only need 50. They will get a bonus to their XP for that adventure proportional to the gold that they gave back. Additionally, if elves spend the money that they get in a frivolous manner, they get another bonus XP. So, this provides an avenue for the players and a motivation for the players because it's an active bonus. I advance my character more quickly and it's in keeping with the theme I wanted to set for elves. I have similar rules or similar working rules for other mm. demi human races and other themes. Uh, if anyone's interested in those, they're welcome to head over to the blog and check out the playtest document. But the reason I bring it up on Anchor is it's relevant to the topic at hand and I've found that giving tangible benefits for activities tends to guide gameplay. So gold for XP rather than combat tends to lead towards a more exploration and gold themed game as opposed to a combat heavy one. In the same sense, giving tangible benefits for role playing in a certain headspace may help the player to get into that headspace, may motivate them to reinforce the theme and promote that sort of Consistency within the world. So, all right. Talk to you later.
1: Not surprisingly, we're basically on the same page. It's funny. I just called into Jason's uh, podcast, so I guess I'm not sure when his Colin Colin show. But anyways, um, and I said that because I think BJ had called in and said maybe award XP uh, for role play of the you know in, in some ways with the role play for the role play to the to the the races. And I said the only way I would really be okay with that is if it was really uh, mechanized very specifically. Not like, oh well, the DM thinks you played an elf well, but in order to play an elf well, you do this thing, which is seems like exactly what you're doing. I wonder. I'm, I'm going to go download your document, but I wonder, you know, what if they spend the the gold on something um, tangible, like they buy themselves plate mail armor? Should they lose XP for that? <laughs> maybe I'm too mean. I, I think maybe they should. Yeah, if the elves put it in like a, a savings uh, account or you know, like a like a Christmas club or or anything like that. Uh, Yeah, they're going to lose XP for that for sure.